0: Well, a good portion of this summer, as in during our teaching time, we've been going through the book of Romans. And as Mindy was reading, you we found ourselves in Romans 11. This is the end of the section where Paul is talking to the church in Rome about, well, what is the status of the Israelites, of the Jewish people, the ones who actually knew God before you Gentiles did. So Paul is talking to a church that has divisions, that has some issues, that may experience some relational problems and some gaps. Part of this is because they are mostly Gentile, i.e. relatively recent believers, and there are a few Jewish believers and historically they have had a hard time getting along and it's not just the Roman church. Paul spends a good deal of ink on parchment writing to other churches about this very same problem. He writes to Ephesus about it. He writes a little bit. He indicates there's some issues in the church in Philippi around this same axis of contention. The Jews think that they, they thought that they were the original bearers of the image of God, the original people of God and yet they are steadfastly resisting Jesus as the Messiah. And so the Gentiles are the beneficiaries of this, and they're, they're loving it, and they're sort of blaming the Jews for being stubborn, being hard-hearted, not doing what they should have done, and they had an opportunity, and they blew it. I don't know if you've ever been tempted to feel that way about somebody, but if you have, you know a little bit about what's in the Gentile mindset at this time. And so Paul is dealing actually with a really significant conflict within the church in Rome. That if it is not dealt with, if it doesn't get addressed, if it isn't resolved in some way, then the church will just be yet another earthly institution that has a lot of stuff going on within it. But more importantly, and this is the calling, of the unique calling of the church, is that the church being the people of God, whether Jew or Gentile, whatever your origin story is, we you we share if you share if you have Christ in your life you share Him with other people people from different backgrounds different ethnicity different races different different socioeconomic strata, right, uh, male and female old and young people with capable leaders that are just fishermen people with capable leaders that are lawyers all of these things that I've just outlined have been bones of contention through, at various times in various churches and Paul and other apostles have addressed them. And they're doing so so that the church itself would more and more reflect the love of God and that love is manifest in a unity, in a joy, in a desire to be together and recognizing that these things that are are different aspects of our background and our story far from being bones of contention are actually things that are part of God's plan and his strength. And so... We might be tempted to think that this has, or ask the question, what relevance does that have for us today? Because we don't have the big uh, angst between Jew and Gentile, but we have our own angst, don't we? (laughs) We as a church are not immune from uh, our own sort of versions of things that happen within a body of believers. Still same kinds of arguments over which believer is more righteous, over which doctrine is more correct, over which point of view around something in society is the better one to have. Oh, you know, pick an issue and we as church members can find ourselves picking a side. And if you've ever been in that situation, and I won't ask for a show of hands because it's probably unanimous, um, you know that that's hard, that conflict comes up, that things are difficult, that they're uncomfortable, that you think in the church, you think of all places where this shouldn't happen, this should be the place. And yet it does. So what does Paul help us to understand? What is it that we can take away today that will help us in terms of conflicts that uh, whether we're in a, conflicts within a church uh, or conflicts with, it, with other Christians, the idea of conflict is something that Paul is addressing. And I think we can learn from that. Now, if you're like me, uh, was, some people react to conflict different ways. Some people like stirring up a pot. They're just, they're that kind of person. They're like, oh yeah, we're just gonna get into it now. Because that's what I like to do. I like to get things going. I like to ask the hard questions. I like to be the person in the room that everybody goes, why did that person come? Who invited them? But others, this is a little bit more my side of the things, like, no, I, conflict isn't good. Conflict is better to be avoided uh, if you can. But we know that we can't, and nor we indeed know that we should not, because we are still on the way of being made more and more like Christ. So Paul is helping us understand what that looks like. So in the middle of this, what Mindy was reading is the conclusion of the whole Jew and Gentile conflict. And Paul was saying that far from being, uh, well, first before he gets to sort of the punchline, and this is in the end of the chapter, He's actually, he's spent a lot of chapter 11 essentially uh, holding up a mirror to each of the groups that were in conflict. He holds up a mirror to the Jews and he says, you think that you are the guys who um, were, the, you are the people of God, but you think that keeping the law is the way in which you honor God, the way in which you belong to God. But I have told you and you have rejected that, The way to love God, the way to know God, the way to be uh, with him forever beyond this life is to embrace and accept and receive what his very own son, Jesus Christ, has done. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one who came and died for us. The law that the Jews hung on to, the, the law was their basis for acceptance with God and that was okay at some level this is what god used at the beginning but later on they realized and paul says to them actually you know what the law was about the law was just to show each of us how far away from god we really are because none of us can keep the law only god himself is holy and so that gap that inevitable gap between how we live and what we think and uh, all our self-centeredness and the love of christ who died for us, who loves us more than we can ever imagine. That love that comes and tries to, wants to take us over to where he is, rather than just make this life all about, like this is all there is. That is what Christ is about. And the Jews say, no, it's just about keeping the law. And Paul says, no, the law is just about revealing that you need to be over here. (laughs) And so Paul is holding the mirror up to the Jews and saying, this is why you're not in the kingdom. Because you still insist that the law is the way. And Jesus is actually the way. But at the same time, he holds up a mirror to the Gentiles. And he says to you Gentiles, he says to the Gentiles, these were people that came from a pagan Greco-Roman culture, pantheistic, all kinds of things went in in that time, in that era. Not unlike our own, if you've read anything about ancient Roman times. But these people that came out of that and came and said, Jesus, you... You've died for me, I believe that. I can't believe that what was once only the the right of the Jews now includes me. And so quite honestly, I actually think, I, I, I can't believe those guys rejected you. I'm not. I'm actually better than they are. And he holds up a mirror to the Gentiles. And he says, the very fact that you have the gospel is a result of what the Jews did in rejecting the gospel. So you can't claim any special privilege or say that you're better than they are. You are actually the beneficiary of their own hardening of heart. But then Paul goes a step further. He says to the, to the uh, goes back to the Jews. There's a little bit of a tennis match going on here. Paul talks about the Jews, and then he talks about the Gentiles, and he says, based on that, line, let's talk about the Jews again. And what he says about the Jews again, he says, the Gentiles, the fact that they're in the kingdom, now that's actually goading the Jews into thinking, okay, well, maybe I need to do something about this. Maybe my idea that it has to be the law isn't the right one. And the fact that more Gentiles now belong to God is is something that I need to think about. And so Paul uses that as a statement of hope for those Jews that still remain outside belief in Christ. What's Paul doing? He holds up a mirror to to Jews first to say, um, because of where you are, Uh, it's not where God wants you to be and he holds up the mirror to the Gentiles and he says you're only there because of God's grace and then he holds up another mirror to the Jews and says but you can still come across you can still belong to Christ it's not over at this point so the first thing about dealing with conflict is to see that God whatever conflict that you're in think of some some kind of conflict that you're in or a church conflict that maybe you've been in Part of the reason that they don't get resolved is because we're not willing to see the mirror, see ourselves in the scriptures, the scripture mirror that God is holding up to say, well, what is it about me? What am I contributing that isn't helpful, that isn't of God? What am I insisting on doing? What am I stubbornly holding on to? We don't like to look at that mirror. It's not just Paul, by the way. James 4, in his fourth chapter, when he's writing to the church, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask of God. You're not praying. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. What are those wrong motives? That you want it for yourself. You want to spend it on your own. This is a church that looks like a church on the outside, but inside isn't very much different from the world. And so he's like holding up the mirror, saying, why is it that there's all this fighting and quarreling going on in your church? Well, it's those other guys, right? Why is it? Many of you had to grow up with siblings, like, stop fighting, well, he started it or she started it. It's never me, I, 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 I was the oldest, so I never did it. I never said I did it. These younger people that don't understand. So we have a way of wanting to blame other people for this, but God holds up that mirror, James holds up the mirror, Paul is holding up the mirror. It's the first thing of understanding how God is using conflict that we might see ourselves the second thing, the way he's addressing conflict is he's actually using it so that we would see his redemptive purposes. What does that mean? It means that God being God, uses all the things that the enemy wants to throw at us in this life, and if we would allow him to use them the way he wants to, he will use them for our his glory and our benefit. Not our comfort, not our ease. There's a lot of ways that we would you know, like to suggest that God would do things differently sometimes, but he will use things, he'll use conflict for his redemptive purposes. And we've just been describing some of that. The conflict of the Jews and their stubbornness, God uses that redemptively to bring the Gentiles into faith. And that coming of the Gentiles, God now uses redemptively to challenge the Jews to keep going, to be hopeful, to keep, keep on moving towards God. Don't, don't just camp out on the law because that's not gonna get you there respond to the Messiah who's actually come. So that's what it means to do things redemptively. When Paul's talking to the church in Corinth and they have all they've all taken sides based on who follows who. I follow Apollos. Well I follow Paul. I follow Peter. I follow Jesus. Suckers. You know that's it. I follow the man himself. And all this is doing is creating what division. And so Paul comes against divisions based on that leadership. One of the ways that you see God using things for redemptive purposes, when you come to the Lord with a conflict in your mind, in your heart, something you really want resolved, be prepared for him to kind of, to use it redemptively, to kind of change the agenda. Luke 12, uh, there's a, a Somebody from the crowd, Jesus is about to teach. He tells a parable. Somebody comes up to him and says, teacher, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. That's a legitimate request. In Bible times, if you had an inheritance, it was legally required that you split that amongst the siblings. Sometimes, some people say that the oldest child got two thirds and the younger sibling got one third. But apparently this guy isn't even getting his one third. We don't know all the details. But he wants the Lord to weigh in. And he says, Hey, you know, tell him, just be the authority. I need some judgment. And Jesus says, What? He says, First of all, who made me an arbiter over you or a judge? That's not my role. But then he goes on to use this person's request for redemptive purposes. He says, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a life, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. This man is going to Jesus for a righteous judgment, and instead the Lord is actually giving him what he needs, which may not be the one-third right then and there, but he needs to know that what he seeks after is actually not the source of the life that he needs. So when we're in conflict, God will often use that to lift our heads to see what the real point is of what he's trying to show us, what's really true about our life, what's really true about our security. Our security isn't in the stuff, our security isn't in, the, uh, in our reputation, our security isn't in the wealth, our security, that, that has a utility to it. I mean, we can all feel and understand that. But if we think that these are ultimate things so that when we are threatened with their loss, we really get quite anxious or things like that, God is actually using that sense of conflict, if you will, to show us ourselves to say your affections are still in this world, your affections are on this earth, but I have something far more redemptive for you. So how do we respond to that? Jesus is using, uh, well, Paul is using the conflict as a mirror that Jew and Gentile would see themselves. He's using this, he wants them to understand how God is actually using this redemptively in salvation history. It doesn't feel good for either side, doesn't feel comfortable, but nevertheless, this is what God's doing. So how do we respond? The first thing to do is just, this will sound really simple, but it's really hard to do. In the midst of this, turn to him. Turn to God and say, Lord, what is it that you want me to understand or even do? Start with understanding about this situation. How often when we're in a conflict do we just want to enlist God on our side? We're just like, okay, I'm looking for recruits here for my cause. Jesus, how about you? You would be the best recruit I can think of because just like this guy, tell my brother to give me his inheritance. But many people, many groups, have tried to do that. Churches, you know, if you go to, if you look at almost any church split, almost any doctrinal disagreement that's created yet new denominations, both sides are claiming God is their, God on their side. And it's not just churches, it's it's the world over. German army in World War II, the soldiers had a belt buckle that said, God mit uns, literally means God with us. There's a lot of people claiming God for their cause. And we are tempted to do that. But the best thing, the best move we can make in the midst of conflict is really just to sit before the Lord. And understand and just say, Lord, I don't even know what to think or do right now. So I'm just going to be in your presence and allow you to minister or do or instruct or just be with me. And when the cloud moves, then I'll move. And when it stays, I'll stay. Here's a couple things to avoid in the midst of how to understand that. And this is what Paul is getting at towards the end of his actually his doxology, he's so wrapped with what God has done between Jew and Gentile, using both of their animosities actually to build both of them up, even though they didn't know it. He's, he just, he kind of goes, this is amazing. Oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths are beyond tracing out. And then he quotes from Job, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? See, sometimes we want to enlist God on our side and we, or we just say, we're not listening to him first, we're just we're giving him advice. Like a quarterback, like Jesus is in your huddle. Okay, this is what you do. You go down for about 10 yards, you cut in, and then I'll, that's not, that's so backwards when you think of that. But we want to give the Lord advice. We want to tell him, this, this is how I think we should handle this. That's, and and, and the hard part, the difficult part about that is sometimes we we could sit there metaphorically, arms folded, waiting for God to take our advice. (laughs) Like, we had this conversation about a week ago, but I haven't seen much move. And I'm, I'm, I'm still here, I'm open. We, I mean, it sounds crazy, and it is, but our hearts can be like that. Rather than to listen, rather than to sit at his feet, and say, Lord, what is it that I need to know? What are you showing me about myself? How are you using this redemptively? Or the other thing that Job is pointing, Job is pointing out that, that Paul's quoting is sometimes we expect God, God owes us. Like, Lord, you owe me. I have been really faithful. I read my Bible more than most people. I go to church. I'm here on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, this is, I, this is no small deal that I'm, I'm doing or you look back on your on your life of faith in Christ and, as if you've, you've been accumulating award miles or something like that, and you go, okay, I'm turning all these in right now for you to move in this conflict. I want you to do what, I, I want the resolution that I have in mind that somehow gets me out of this, allows me to triumph over it, and I, I'm, you owe me. Now, we don't really say it that crassly, but we think that there's <laughs> been this implicit you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, kind of thing. We would never admit to that. But sometimes when we are disappointed or failing to understand why things haven't acted, why these conflicts still persist, we can wonder, we can sort of say, Lord, um, I think you haven't been good? Haven't, this is Job's complaint. Job is saying, I have lived so righteously, and it's true. He was, he was very accurate. But he did, that wasn't the basis on which to approach the Lord. The basis ultimately is the Lord is, <laughs> my ways are not your ways. And, and you just have, and, and actually in that great distance is, is your security. There's nothing that you're going to add. There's no wisdom that you can give that I don't have. There's nothing you've done that creates a debt on my part. This is what God explains to Job in a very short amount of time, in a very hard dialogue at the end. And this is maybe something that we need to hear. Here's how Paul wraps it up in the passage, and here's how we will wrap it up as well. Paul, as part of this doxology, is talking about the unsearchable judgments of God. His paths are beyond tracing out. And he says that in one sense, God has hardened the Jews, but then he's also having mercy on them. And the Gentiles didn't come in to the faith until God had mercy on them. And it's this mercy of God, this way that we're asking God to, Lord, give me the mercy that I need in the conflict that I'm in. God is bound, verse 32, everyone over to disobedience that he might have mercy on them all. All kinds of amazing theological things going on with that. We don't have time for it, but just know that it is the mercy of God that allows us to move from that place of separation from him to a place of security in him. And so we, as we apply it to, to the conflicts that we're in or conflicts that churches go through, it's, it's fine to pray that the Lord's mercy would make that conflict short, that it would be no more than we can bear, that you would see his redemption working in and through you. It's entirely good to pray that. I pray these things, don't, don't hear in this message, some degree of martyrdom, we're just gonna lash ourselves, you know, tie ourselves to the mast, to whatever the storm is, and we're just gonna go through it. I'm only going through any storm with God. I'm only going through with a posture of prayer. I want to go through whatever conflicts come with this idea that, Lord, you are showing me something about myself that still needs to be shaped by you. You're showing me a way that you want to redeem some aspect of this life in this church, or in my life, and you're allowing me to just be in your presence, in this posture of just sitting and waiting, and I'm trying to understand what you would have me do next. If we do do those things, if we and then rely on His mercy, these are I think the sermon title was you know the hidden blessings of conflict. These are the hidden blessings that await us if we would see how God has worked in the church at Rome and each subsequent church and is indeed desirous of working in our own life.